Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Dais, a podcast about the stories taking place in and around El Paso County, Colorado. As always, I'm your host, Scott Anderson, and my guest today is the district attorney for the 4th Judicial District here in El Paso County, Michael Allen. How are you doing today, Michael? Great. Thanks for having me. Good. Thank you for having me today. I really appreciate it. We're sitting here in your office. Uh, these chairs are much nicer than mine, so it may take a little bit to get me out of it. Need to do a little bit of housekeeping before we get started today. Let people know that if they're interested in more stories about people doing good in and around El Paso County or hearing from county leadership about local government priorities and how they operate, you can find additional episodes of this podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, but to get started, uh, Michael, I would like it if you gave us a little bit of background about yourself prior to coming to the district attorney's office. Yeah, so <clears throat> first and foremost, it's I th- I'm proud to be a Colorado native. Grew up in the Denver area, graduated from Arvada West, and then uh, really wanted to do something important. So I joined the Navy straight out of high school and was a uh, F-18 radar repair guy for a number of years, including the last four years on the USS Carl Vinson, an uh, aircraft carrier stationed on the West Coast. And then really my mom had planted a seed as a young boy to think about law school, and I finally decided I should follow through with her suggestion, and, and when I got done with the Navy, went to UNC up in Greeley and then law school out at uh, the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas, and then prosecuted out there. That's really where I got my, my start in this in this profession. And how is practicing law different in different places? I mean, is it pretty much, you know, you do it in one place, you can do it anywhere, or are there a lot of different things that people have to have in mind when they move to different locations? Yeah, I mean, there are some some procedural differences. The laws are generally the same. Even if you call them something different, you can tell they're basically the same. So for instance, assault in Colorado is the same thing as battery in Kansas. Okay. The wording is all the same. They're just titled different things. Procedure those where you run into the biggest difference. Uh, for instance, when I first moved back to Colorado and worked in this office as a young deputy DA, the uh, first trial that I did, uh, the judge turns to the jury and says, does the jury have any questions for the witness? And that threw me for a loop. I'd never seen that before. So that's those procedural things that are different from state to state that are written in the state statute in any given state that, that can really be a big difference. You know, it takes some getting used to, but <laughs> it's actually a very interesting aspect of, of criminal trials here in Colorado. Is there, are, are you surprised? Maybe I shouldn't say on a regular basis, but uh, do you still get surprised by some procedural things that pop up? You're like, oh, like law seems to be changing all the time or, or by now, are you pretty seasoned and kind of know what to expect? Yeah, the, the procedures don't necessarily change from year to year. It's the substantive law that can change. Okay. Uh, things can be decriminalized. So penalty lowered from one year to the next based on what's happening in the legislature. Mm-hmm. Uh, different focus on, on different things based on what's happening in the community can be a change. Uh, but pro- procedure don't, doesn't really change okay. all that often. Oh, very good. Okay. So can you talk a little bit more about your role specifically here in the district attorney's office and the part that you play in the justice system in that process? Yeah. So the, the DA's office um, is really the chief law enforcement office in a given region in the state. In Colorado, we have 22 judicial districts currently. We'll have 23 judicial districts in 2025. Um, and each one of those judicial districts, the DA is the final arbiter on what's going to be presented in, in a courtroom on, in the criminal justice realm. So that's why I say that the, uh, each of the DAs are really the chief law enforcement officer in that given judicial district. So here in the 4th Judicial District, we work and serve two different counties, El Paso County and Teller County. 
it's a population that is growing at a very rapid pace. In fact, El Paso County is growing faster than any place else in the, especially the Denver metro area. Mm-hmm. Colorado Springs is projected to be the biggest city in the state in a very short amount of time. We have the most populous county in El Paso County in the entire state. And when that split happens in 2025, creating the 23rd judicial district, that will create uh, and, and really uh, further the idea that the 4th judicial district is the leading district in the state for criminal justice, meaning that we will have the biggest judicial district in the state. Uh, we typically file more cases than in any other judicial district in the state. We take more cases to trial in, the, in any other district in the state and really working with all of our law enforcement partners here to make sure that we are holding the line on public safety. We work with at least 22 different law enforcement agencies in the area from local, like Manitou Springs Police Department, all the way up to federal agencies like FBI, ATF, U.S. Attorney's Office, all of those uh, bigger uh, alphabet uh, agencies <laughs> for the for the national government. Yeah. Uh, so there are... T- uh, I, presumably 21 other district attorneys in the state? Currently, there's 21 others, including us, makes it 22. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you guys get together and have barbecues and talk about, you know, what it's like to be a district attorney? I haven't had a barbecue yet. That sounds nice. <laughs> Maybe we could have a competition to see which judicial district has the best barbecue. Oh, yeah. A yeah. chili cook-off actually would be really great. It would be, especially this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, moving on a little bit, uh, and... Maybe this is actually uh, something you can talk about with other district attorneys. Collaboration is really like a really uh, an important thing for us here in El Paso County. In the state, it's important everywhere, right? It, it's hard to do much of anything these days if you're not collaborating with others. Right. Uh, so, can you talk about the collaboration piece in the work that you do specifically, and who some of those partners are that you work with? Yeah, I think what's most important for me in my mind when we talk about collaboration is. To have good, effective collaboration, you have to have, first and foremost, good relationships with people. Uh, And what that means is that you've got to have the ability to trust another leader in another agency to make sure that their agency is doing the things that they should do. And, And what that allows is that even if you have disagreements on an outcome of a particular thing, if you have that trusting relationship that pre-exists, then you know that you're, that each side is coming from it in an honest way. Mm -hmm. And then there's, even if there's disagreement, you can still have that respect going forward and still have that positive collaboration going forward as well. And we have that. We've got really good relationships with our law enforcement agencies. I have the pleasure of working with two sheriff's offices, Teller County Sheriff and El Paso County Sheriff. Both, both leaders in those agencies have really good relationships with them, uh, work very well with them. That's part of that collaboration, that relationship building. But it goes beyond that. I have five county commissioners in El Paso County that I work closely with uh, that they provide funding for our office. I also have three county commissioners in Teller County that provide funding to this office and really have great relationships with them as well. And again, it gets back to that trust uh, professional collaboration and ability to see what the goals are for each individual agency and achieve the goals as best we possibly can, knowing that there are limitations. Mm -hmm. Uh, We sure we would love to do a lot more, but we rely on taxpayers to provide funding for this office. And and then we are expected to fulfill the goals of the taxpayers to make sure that we're holding line on public safety. And it requires that collaboration and trust with our law enforcement agencies, uh, private agencies in the community. It could be TESA, it could be Safe Passage, uh, mental health providers. Uh, you know, we obviously have a 
what in my mind is an exploding problem with mental health in this country and even here in the fourth judicial district where people's needs are not being met in an effective way. So someone like me, and I consider myself to be like a regular Joe, generally speaking, uh, doesn't have a great idea of what the DA's office actually does. I mean, outside of standing in front of a jury in a courtroom, which I'm sure anyone who's seen Law and Order would probably like, it comes to their head, right? But what are some other things that the office does that you can maybe help explain more about how the DA's office itself operates? Yeah, I prefer a few good men over Law and Order. Just for the you know what? I, I do too. So I appreciate the reference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so really what we do is, is we, obviously we collaborate with our law enforcement agency partners. Um, we have people that are on call and what they, what that means is that if a murder happens in the fourth judicial district, we've got people that are actually responding out to the murder scenes right alongside with uniformed police officers that are investigating that case. And they'll stay with that case all the way through that initial investigative phase, all the way through trial uh, in, in sentencing ultimately, if there's a criminal conviction. Uh, we have people that are working with um, victims of human trafficking. We have people that are working with undercover uh, drug investigators to prosecute drug distributors and cartel members that are bringing um, illegal substances into our community. We'll work with uh, different partners on you know, providing funding to court care at the courthouse, which is if somebody has, has a reason to be in the courthouse and they've got children that mm -hmm. need child care, there's a place to do that in the courthouse, and we help raise money for that function. Um, there's a 5K every year that's that a member of our office um, helps plan and organize and make sure that it's successful. So we, we collaborate in a lot of ways with what's happening in the community. Very good. And so in the past year, there have been a couple – really big cases here in El Paso County. It'd be hard not to be aware of them if you've lived here uh, in this past year, um, some of which have even garnered national attention. Uh, when you're in charge of cases like that, how are you able to manage, I would say, like meeting expectations from so many other entities? I mean, you have uh, political pressure, I'm sure, which exists, uh, the victims' families, of course, uh, and then even the media at large. Like, how do you manage all those expectations between all those uh, individuals? Yeah, I think the... First and foremost, it's having a really strong team in the DA's office because I, I obviously, as one person, can't do it all. And we've, we've got really strong other prosecutors in the office, support staff, so paralegals, legal assistants, um, post-certified investigators that help on cases. If you don't have that really good team, then the DA is really going to be unsuccessful. And so first and foremost, it's important for me to note that we've got fantastic people in every level of this office doing really strong work on behalf of the citizens of this community. And you're right, there are a lot of pressures that come with those types of big cases. It can be uh, political pressure, uh, wanting to see somebody, you know, prosecuted to the fullest extent. Um, if it's a really big, impactful community uh, interest case, it could be maybe the other direction, that somebody thinks that somebody shouldn't be being prosecuted for a case, even though the evidence in law says that they should be prosecuted. And so those political pressures absolutely exist. Uh, one thing that I think is important for a DA, and specifically me, is to keep a focus on what does the evidence show, what does the law provide uh, guidance on, and if we follow the evidence in the law, then we're going to result in justice for whatever particular type of case it might be. And that holds true for small cases, and it holds true especially for big cases that have that big 
community or even worldwide impact. And we had two big cases that we were getting international attention on, mm-hmm. um, obviously this year. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, the DA's uh, office is an elected position. It is. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about political pressure, right? Like how much, or I guess how difficult is it for you personally to balance what is right in seeking justice with perhaps what is popular, right? Because those two things don't always align. And, you know, for, I think the person that's in your shoes should, you know, of course, clearly be focused on the justice part of that. But again, it is an elected position. So how do you, I guess, maybe prove to the people who have put you in this, in this office that, you know, justice above all is really what is important and not scoring points with, you know, the public, I guess. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> it really comes back to, in my mind, the the motto that we have subscribed to in this office, which is we have a, an office mission that says we're going to collaborate with law enforcement in the community to uh, follow the evidence and achieve justice, whatever that might be for a case. But more succinctly, Martin Luther King Jr. has a quote, the time is always right to do what is right. Mm-hmm. And what that means to me is that we should be guided by the evidence in the law. Uh, and even as the elected district attorney who will be up for reelection, if we're doing things that are right by the law, I'm comfortable standing on that platform and justifying our, our efforts mm-hmm. on anything that we've done. And if the public agrees with that, then obviously they have a way to, to reflect that agreement and if they don't, I'll still sleep soundly at night knowing yeah. that we did the right thing, right. regardless of what the political pressures might be. And, and I think that's important for a role like this. This is not the traditional elected office. We have serious work that we're doing that impacts people in a very dramatic way every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, every one of our cases reflects the idea that the, the victims in a case and the defendant in a case, they're, they're living real life in the courtroom the very worst day of their life. And I think it's important to reflect that in our efforts and making sure that we're following that law and the, and the evidence to achieve justice, regardless of what the political outcome might be. Very good. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. Thank you. Uh, so one event that's actually taking place today for those listening, we are recording on September 15th, uh, is something called a second chances event. So this is something I've never heard of before, and maybe you can uh, let me know if this is a common thing or not. Uh, but can you talk about the idea behind these warrant forgiveness programs and why you think they are so important? Yeah. Well, first I want to talk a little bit more wider scope about second chances. The vast majority of people that end up in the criminal justice system probably made a bad decision as opposed to they are a bad person. And really, I think that's where the importance of having um, contextual experience in prosecution is so important. And that's really separating the wheat from the chaff. If we can divert um, somebody out of the criminal justice system because they made a bad decision and help them be in a better place in the future so that they're not impacting other community members in a negative way, that enhances public safety. Just as much as if somebody is a bad person and we prosecute them and put them in prison forever, that also enhances public safety for a specific uh, community. So both things are equally important, and it requires that, uh, again, that contextual experience in prosecution and law enforcement to achieve and understand those differences in the gray areas in, in cases. The We have a very strong tradition here in the 4th Judicial District of 
subscribing to second chance opportunities. Our veterans trauma court is one of those opportunities. Our recovery court is one of those opportunities. Our domestic violence uh, recovery court is one of those opportunities. And it's really trying to give people the tools to avoid committing any further law violations down the road so that they stay out of the criminal justice system. The, the warrant forgiveness or second chance event that we're hosting today over in the courthouse is another one of those examples. It's really designed to um, address people that are facing low-level offenses, no uh, person crime offenses, anything like that, no domestic violence, no sex assault, that kind of thing. So again, low-level offenses who have, for one reason or another, found themselves on warrant status because they missed a court date. Uh, they can come in knowing that they're not going to get picked up on that low-level offense, can get back on track, and not have that worry that the next time they're at the grocery store and they see a cop that they're going to get arrested. Um, it's, it's really helping them get back on track, get back to being right with the law and making it a productive outcome in the long run. So what do you think an event like that does for someone who finds himself in that position? Like, like what do you think goes through their head when they think, you know, it, like, like you've kind of talked about a little bit how when people are in these situations, they're often at the lowest point in their lives, right? Yeah. Like when people find that they do have a second chance, right? When that exists for them, what do you think that does? You know, it's hard for me to get into the head of people in that way. Uh, I suspect that there's probably some amount of distrust. They, they maybe don't trust that it's actually going to be play out the way that it's being advertised to play out that it potentially is a ploy to just get them to show up and then they get arrested anyway. Uh, I hope that's not the way that they think about it. I hope they see this as, as a chance to get right with whatever they're facing. And I, th and I hope what it also ultimately does is builds trust in the criminal justice system. After all, everything that we do in the criminal justice system is a human function. It's part of our social contract between government and the community to make sure that we are doing things uh, to better serve the community. And I think that's what these efforts are all about, is, is better serving the community, get people back on track to being productive members of the community. And if it takes a second chance for somebody that just made a bad decision, we should all be for that. So I've had the opportunity to speak with a few different nonprofit organizations since I started the podcast. It's actually been really great. Um, and they have close ties to the justice system. You mentioned uh, Tessa earlier. Uh, Forge Evolution is another one that I can think of. Uh, can you talk about how valuable organizations like that are for the DA's office and why residents should be using them as a resource? Yeah, oftentimes most residents probably won't even know about places like Tessa or Safe Passage or even Forge. It won't be until... Maybe they become uh, victimized in a case and, and then are introduced to these resources. The, the important way that community members, though, can be supportive of these agencies is, one, to look out for fundraising efforts for those places. Uh, I know Safe Passage does fundraising efforts. I know Tessa does as well. I believe Forge does. And that's a way to support agencies that are directly serving victims, helping them through navigate through the criminal justice system as a victim, which can be, maybe people understand this or maybe they don't, can be very traumatic by itself, uh, navigating through it as a victim. It can be very frustrating, probably the most frustrating thing that a person will ever have to deal with. And that is because the criminal justice system, once it gets into the courts, moves at a snail's pace. 
and that's deliberate. We all have constitutional rights, and that's part of what the DA's office does too, is to protect people's constitutional rights, including defendants, making sure that we any convictions that we achieve are constitutionally sound that can be upheld through appellate um, review. But think about that that impact on on victims. Um, it can take like the Stout case. It can take over three years to get to a final resolution, and I can tell you the the frustration and pain that those family members felt because of those long delays were very real and something that they're still trying to recover from. And, and so places like Safe Passage and Tessa and Forge can really help those victims work through that frustration, be productive participants as victims in a criminal case, and hopefully help them be a part of achieving justice. Yeah, and and since you since you brought it up, I I wanted to ask a little bit more directly about it. So the the Stout case and the Club Q cases are the two that we were referring to earlier that had garnered that national attention. When you look at those two cases, and you compare the one which took years to go through yeah. the process, and one which took about six months, mm-hmm. right? How I guess maybe how does that like highlight the different ways that the justice system can work, and why? as you've alluded to a few different times, um, justice in different form, uh, justice takes shape in different forms. Yeah, there's there's not one thing that is justice. Justice is whatever, again, the, the facts of a case, the evidence in a case, and the law says justice should be for that particular case. And that's, I think, really, in my mind, the beauty of what of that word, justice. It's It's so fact specific outcomes that are that's important for a community to understand and and you're right those two cases took dramatically different paths to get to ultimate conclusion through prosecution the stout case took over three years it was three years and something like four months i think to get to final uh, resolution on that case causing a lot of frustration not just for the victims Uh, gannon's parents obviously suffered a lot of pain and and they'll never be the same uh, as a result of what happened in that case but even community members who followed the case sense the same pain and frustration in the ultimate um, delays that, that caused you know this case to go to trial so much later than the actual offense. And then contrasting that with what happened with Club Q and how quickly we were able to reach a fantastic resolution in that case. Um, very similar outcomes, very similar in, the, in that both offenders will never see the light of day again as a free person. They're going to be behind bars forever. And yet one was able to be very quick and one was was much longer. Uh, Both things, both cases, though, really highlight what I talked about at the very beginning, which is having a very strong team. If we did not have strong prosecutors and paralegals and investigators in the DA's office, there's no way that Club Q resolves as fast as it does because there's so many pitfalls in a high-profile case like that, discovery violations, um, constitutional violations, even during the investigation phase, we were able to avoid all of those things to the point that defense basically threw their arms up and, and gave up and, and, and walked in and took the ultimate punishment that we would have achieved if we had gone to trial. It was the exact same punishment that we would have achieved if we were successful at trial. And that really speaks again to the the, the service that we're providing to the community, the horsepower that we've got here, um, legal minds and all of that, and, and able to take on the most challenging cases and achieve justice for this community in a way that is 
final and resolute and um, we can have confidence that is permanent. Uh, so for those who may be going through the justice system for the first time, I'm sure it can be very overwhelming. Is there anything that your office does that can help them go through that? Yeah. So there was recently a very well published um, event that was over at Safe Passage that gives an example of, of what I'm going to talk about. And that is that um, play level mock-up of what a courtroom is that would have little dolls that the that kids that are going through in the criminal justice system can then see where the judge sits, see where the prosecutor and the defense attorney sits, see where they're going to sit, see where jurors are sitting in the courtroom and move and manipulate and interact with that process in a way that makes it understandable for kids. Similarly, when we're preparing a witness to come in and testify in a courtroom, we take them to the courtroom. We tell them the types of questions that we're going to ask them. We get them comfortable with that process because, again, we're asking them to come in and talk about what is oftentimes the worst moment in their entire life in front of a room full of complete strangers. That, that's a hard thing for victims to understand and, and get comfortable with. And the reason why that's important is if a person comes in and looks nervous, they can't say their, their words correctly, they, they fumble over the way they're saying it or their voice is shaky or they can't look at the jurors, uh, they're looking down thinking instead of talking. We all know through interactions, common human interactions, that those things can be perceived by other people as they're not telling the truth. Yeah. And really, it's just nerves. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you can do as much as you can at the front end to remove the nervous part of it, get them calm, then they can go into the courtroom and effectively talk about how they were victimized. And that's going to allow them to be a better participant in achieving justice for a case than if they had just come into a cold. And so we do lots of different things to prepare those folks to go through that, whether it's a child victim or an adult victim or a surviving victim of somebody who was killed. Yeah. And what, while I certainly don't want to compare what you do with what I do, I mean, it's interviewing, right? It yeah. is, a, is a lot of what it is. And trying to get across the difference between rehearsed versus scripted is, is very difficult, even, even for me, right? When, when I have these conversations, the goal is to have it sound like a natural conversation. I mean, before, to, I guess, go behind the curtain a little bit, beforehand, we talked about, generally speaking, what the questions were going to be, so you had an idea, but you know, you know, we, none of us have like scripts in front of us, right? We're right. not reading word for word what we're saying. And so in a much more serious light, what you do what is in your mind that difference between rehearsed versus scripted? And like, why is that such an important factor for people to be keeping in mind? Um, kind of how you described it, because when people are doing these different things with their bodies, a lot of it, the times it can be seen as uh, seen as a lie, seen as, uh, you know, they don't know what they're saying. They're making it up in their head. Like, how do you help people come to grips with that and like be comfortable with that? Yeah, it's <clears throat> I'm not going to actually compare myself to what you do because it's totally different, <laughs> but it's similar. It's that art of communication. Mm -hmm. uh, we all have, um, you know, our nonverbal cues when we're communicating uh, that are so important. They either lend credibility to a person who's talking or they can detract from uh, somebody who's talking. Those things are very real for somebody who is trying to communicate really horrific things from a witness stand in real time in front of people and there's no editing that can be done mm -hmm. uh, in those instances. 
And so it's that art of communication of making sure that they understand uh, you can have really hard discussions with a witness beforehand saying the thing that you're doing right now, if you do that on the stand, they're not going to believe you. You've got to change the way you're holding yourself or fidgeting or uh, not looking people in the eye when you're talking, that kind of thing. So important little things that people don't necessarily think about when they're on the stand testifying. And, and it's really, again, back to that art of communication and understanding how we understand each other as humans, how we communicate with each other as humans and, and really getting into that idea. And so in a lot of respects, it's very similar to what you're doing as a, uh, you know, with this podcast, but uh, it's something we do every single day. No, that's good. Thank you for that. Uh, so we're getting to the end here and I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you want to add that we haven't been able to talk about yet you think is important or maybe just uh, reiterate a point that you uh, would like to end with really kind of cap things off. Yeah, the the big thing that I would just come back to and that's that we rely and work with so closely with our community members to do the jobs that we do. Um, people probably don't realize that for Southern Colorado, uh, really basically from the Palmer Divide in South all the way across the state of Colorado, we have what is essentially the biggest law firm in Southern Colorado here in the DA's office. We have 92 attorneys on staff. That dwarfs any other um, collection of attorneys anywhere in the state for the southern part of the state. Mm -hmm. But we, we really rely on that working with the community to do the work that we do. And the way that we reflect that is through our trial work. Uh, we always lead the state in the number of trials, jury trials that we take to trial, we trust the community members who are being plucked out of their daily lives and forced to sit in a courtroom and listen to facts and listen to witnesses, see horrific pictures, maybe look at recordings or whatever it might be, and then decide for themselves collectively what the criminal justice or uh, public safety aspect they think is important for that case and, and make an ultimate outcome. If you don't have that trust in the community, and the community having trust in the DA's office, then that starts to deteriorate. We don't have that problem here. We are very comfortable taking cases to trial and, and relying on our community members to have a say in what criminal justice looks like in their community, because after all, it is their community. Yeah. No, that's very good. Thank you for that. And so thank you, Michael, for taking the time. I appreciate you uh, being here today and for the work that you guys do here in El Paso County. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you're interested in listening to additional episodes of Beyond the Dais, you can find us on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.